Well, um, it's, it's a movie that's several years old now, but it also looks decades back to when Notre Dame football was relevant. Um, is Rudy. Sorry, I just like to say that. Um, yeah. uh, it, was, it was the movie Rudy. Um, whether it's historically accurate or not, at least it's inspiring when you watch it. Um, the guy who came from nothing and just kept working and kept working, and then he finally, you know, made the team, and then he got to play, like, at the very end of one game. But the whole idea of, of, of the, that team and, and the work put in and all that, it's why that movie's great. But there's a scene right before that last game in the locker room um, with um, Coach Dan Devine. And uh, his, these, these are his final words, um, particularly to the seniors, their final, se- final game of their final season. And he gives them these words um, uh, to warn them and to remind them of who they are, trying to inspire them to victory. And so um, they gather around. It's minutes before they're going to leave the tunnel. And he said this, Remember, no one, and I mean no one, comes into our house and pushes us around pretty good powerful words he's trying to warn and remind them in order to inspire them to victory no one let no one come in our house and push us around and that's what's going to ring throughout the passage today in fact it was in the passage last week and i'll show you it's in the passage for next week we're in the section no one should come in and push us around we need to be warned though that it's possible but we also need to be inspired as to who we are and remember who we are, particularly because of Christ. We're going to look at um, Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. If you're there, start pick me up in verse 8. Colossians 2, this is Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. He writes it again, remember, from a prison cell. I would have been thinking about myself. Paul is writing to warn and inspire and encourage and remind the the believers there and us today. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. And He is head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I said that this is um, Paul, similar to Coach Devine. He's looking to warn and remind 
the Colossians and also us. Let no one come in and push you around. In fact, I want you to sneak. Uh, I want you to be so encouraged um, by how simple I'm going to point something out right here. It's simply looking at your English Bible and seeing a phrase again and again. Look at 2-4. This is Paul was already picking up on his concern. Uh, he doesn't know many of these folks, but he has a love for them and a commitment to them, and he wants them to know Christ who in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says in verse 4, I say this, why? So that no one will delude you. That means water down what you believe, spread you thin, move you off of what we just sang about, the firm foundation. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Drop down to 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Drop down to 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, on and on and on. It's a simple observation, but all of chapter 2 is why Paul is writing them. Epaphras, of whom and from whom Paul heard the report of the Colossians that they came to faith in Christ and it was a robust faith and they had a, a spilling out love for one another. That's why he says, I thank my God when I pray for you because of the faith you have in the Lord Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. And then he says, in fact, I continue to pray that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom Spiritual understanding, why? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of him, please him in all respects, bearing spiritual fruit in every good work, and increasing in your knowledge of him, being strengthened by him, overflowing with gratitude, because he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul is animated, and he prays, and his prayers are animated. They're not generic. Be with them. He thanks God for them, for their faith in Christ, for their love for one another, but he knows that could be dicey at times, particularly if the world's wisdom, if the world's philosophy, if the philosophy, which he actually says in 2.8, the philosophy that's being circulated and percolated in the Colossian church, this is within their house. That someone or several someones are hijacking the gospel. They're saying, that was great that you started with Jesus, but hey, now we've got kind of the inside track to some of the secret knowledge you could have, because then you'd really be getting in on life. But right now you lack, you don't have the fullness, you don't have the knowledge. They threw all this jargon around to sound like the spiritual insiders. And that's intriguing. It perks anyone's ears up. But I want you to hear first and foremost, this entire chapter Paul is addressing that. This is why he's writing the letter. He's agitated. He's on guard for. He's on lookout for. He wants to shepherd them away from. He wants to alert them. He wants to remind them. And he wants to warn them. And so as we go through um, this passage, um, there's a lot in it. I mean, it is thick. But we've already rehearsed it by taking the Lord's Supper. We've already sung it. We've already prayed it. 
And if you are, if you come to faith in Christ, what we're going to go through today is by way of reminder so that we not be taken captive, but we become more captivated with the one who made us complete in himself. That he is enough for you. All of the letter of Colossians, Paul is saying, I know this is going on. I know they're bending your ear. I know they're pulling the rug out from in underneath you. You feel like you're on shaky ground. I say this so that no one will delude you. In fact, I want you to have uh, a disciplined faith, an ordered faith. I want you to have stability and then vitality. Last week we looked at 2, 6, and 7. As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been, it already happened, having been firmly rooted in him and established in your faith. And then he ends with overflowing with gratitude. You remember we said last week, if you were here, that's the actual, that's actually the first command given in Colossians. Paul is, is, is not interested in giving them uh, a to-do list and a to-don't list. But the people that are with this philosophy are majoring in those things. Well, here's all the things you need to be doing. Oh, you're not doing that. Why aren't you doing that? Oh, you don't have this or you have been doing this. You're not quite there. You're almost there. And Paul's saying, no one comes into our house and pushes us around. So we think of Paul, yes, we probably think of Paul as more aggressive than Jesus in our warped mindset. But Jesus had the same, you want to get the hair on the back of Jesus' neck popping up? Just be a religious leader who helps everybody obsess over what you did on the Sabbath. We've talked about that many times. And a similar thing is happening here. The traditions of, of men, both Jewish traditions, as well as just elementary, elementary principles or elemental principles of the world, like basics. That word literally means like things in a row or sequence. So it was used of the alphabet. Uh, if they had rankings of, you know, basketball teams that have been ranked in a row. But it also, some of your Bibles say the elemental spirits of the world, because underneath human tradition, which is not God's word, that's not bad all the time. But when it becomes primary and supreme, Paul says, now we're out of line. And if any of those things, including the demonic forces wanting to use, you know, the basic things of life and get like he'll talk about next week, hey, let's let's eat this and don't eat this. And he said, all of a sudden you are Obsessed, your eye is off the ball. You're obsessed with all of these additions when Jesus is enough. And so I want you to see that. No one, no one, no one. But the command, this is the second command in Colossians. It's see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it. It's literally um, the word, uh, one of the words to see, but it's the idea to see not with the eyeball, but through the eyeball with your mind's being on alert. It means to pick up on the signals, read the room, read underneath what's being told you so that you are not taken captive. That word there, that reminds me of almost every, um, in our house right now, we kind of like the FBI series. Um, Not so much most wanted, but maybe because of this very picture that Paul's giving. When he says, see to it that no one take you captive, through empty philosophy and deceptive. Basically, it's a philosophy that's empty and deceptive. That's what he's saying. It's not two different things. 
but that's how they do it. But they're going to take you captive in the FBI series, um, particularly the most wanted ones. It seems like every week somebody is getting, um, it's human trafficking or someone's getting kidnapped. In fact, sometimes we have to turn it off because we can't handle it. But that's, that's a dark picture. And Paul paints that picture to say, it's not only possible, particularly with what's going on, and they're giving you plausible arguments. He says, I don't want you to be deluded by persuasive or plausible or fine-sounding arguments. All those things, they're tickling your ear. They're kind of what you, that sounds good. That sounds true. Yeah, I've been feeling lately like I don't have it all together. Here's what you need. He says, it's going to take you off captive. So don't read it and go, yeah, we kind of, you know, we kind of got a little bit off kilter. No, you've been physically or, or metaphorically, you've been taken captive. You've been kidnapped away from life and life that is to the full, which Jesus came to give. He says, that's what I am after and against. And that's what I'm saying in your, in your uh, it's not in your English probably, when he says um, being taken captive by philosophy, it's, it's literally the philosophy. And I think by that, most commentators would say this, he's saying, I'm pinpointing not philosophy. Paul's not anti-philosophy, which means lover of wisdom. He's saying, I'm anti-the philosophy that's being circulated around there that's toxic and that is taking many of you or tempting many of you um, their way and alluring you to being taken captive. He said, that's what we've got to be on the alert um, for. Why is it so alluring to them? Well, the philosophy, and, and then we'll talk about this more next week, this is kind of a mixture of um, it wouldn't be alluring or it wouldn't be tempting and all of a sudden like, whoa, how did I find myself here taken captive if it was crazy? He's not, they're not giving you some just way out in left field. They're actually some mixture of some scripture. And then there's some mixture of, um, there's a little bit of a Jewish element, probably a strong Jewish element, particularly in the traditions. Um, there's also a mysticism, a pagan mysticism. There's a worship of angels. Part of why that was is um, particularly in, in, you know, the Greek culture, you would have had this, this idea that, well, God couldn't, um, you know, God's spirit and things that are of matter are evil. And so what God needs to do in order to relate to us, he has these emanations. Like, in other words, like, well, this, one, this one's fully God, and then this one's a little less God, and let's get all the way down here until it's accessible to us. And so they would have put Jesus in that category. It's, this is a mixture, again, this is a stew, if you will, of thoughts trying to answer what does philosophy do it's trying to raise and answer the the essential questions of life of existence of meaning of purpose of identity and so they're they're saying as you try to find your place in the world and you try to find where jesus's place is several of them of this would have said well he wasn't god he was an, one of the emanations or if he's god he wasn't man and you're going to see in just a moment, we'll see in just a moment. That's why Paul is very careful to say, in him all the fullness of deity dwells. So before we get really lost there, come to our world. Why would, and what are the empty philosophies of our day? There's a lot of empty philosophies. Um, and, you know, some of us would say, yeah, 
That's right. All about the traditions of men and religious, you know, do's and don'ts. And that's, that's why I haven't been to church in a while or whatever. That's, and that's, that's true. We can get off base there. But it also just works in our world. This idea that they're saying, well, you kind of relax enough religious I's dotted and T's crossed. But it also works in our world where you're told that, well, until you reach this status financially, socially, until you uh, have this career path figured out, until you uh, are able to sit, you know, students, until you're able to sit at this table or hang out with these folks, your life's not enough. Um, it's, not, it's not just this current generation. It's all generations ask these three questions because and this, I'm saying this because this is why Paul knows we could easily be taken and allured into this captiveness because we're all asking these questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference can I make? If you're a parent, um, your, your children, your teenagers are asking those questions whether they know it or not. The hard part is we're still asking and trying to answer them ourselves, right? But we're also trying to help them answer them. And so much in our world today is empty philosophy with enough truth and or that sounds good or that sounds right that where we can be taken captive. See also how many genders do we have? Sexual orientation um, questions. And I'm not, uh, I'm not mocking them. The reason why those things are so alive is because the question of who am I and where do I fit is so never-ending in us. And for them back in their day, they had empty philosophies. That's right, you're not enough in this. You lack this. If you only had this, if you only knew this secret stuff. And Paul's saying, see to it that no one comes in our house and pushes us around. See that no one comes into our house and takes you away captive. Because what you'll find eventually is it's an empty deception. Yes, it sounded true. For example, some of the ways we'll mix in spiritual things into that whole identity stuff that's, that's you know, a waged war in our culture is, well, God's only loving. So God doesn't really have standard. I mean, he's just loving. And, and if God were really loving, then he wouldn't even hold anyone to this kind of standard. That sounds true, because God is loving. God is love. And yet, it's, it's, a, it's a hijacking of that and an elevating of that without holding intention that he's also holy and just. Yes, merciful and compassionate and wrathful. Uh, one time I had a friend that was like, hey, why do we sing all these songs about you know, celebrating and joy? We don't ever sing this song about God's wrath. <laughs> he's like, he's just fully wrathful too. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that would sell on the charts very well. But that even shows if we only think of God as compassionate and gracious, which we should always think of him that way, and only loving, but by that what we mean is he lets me do what I want. He lets me live how I live. Then we don't have a complete picture of God, and we can easily be hijacked. We can easily be kidnapped into that because that feels good. That gets me toward Maybe I can be acceptable. And so as we struggle in our own culture, it's not just teenagers, it's not just your children, it's you and me uh, in our world. 
you're middle-aged, or you're at the end of life still asking or still feeling this. And I just want to give you this statement, and what would you fill in? I am not blank enough. I'm not blank enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not sought after enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not competent enough. I'm not noticed enough. I'm not wanted enough. I'm not righteous enough. How would God have anything to do with me? I'm not clean enough. I'm not put together enough. Why can't I be more like them? I'm not acceptable enough. Any and all of those, every person sitting in here, the person sitting next to you that you think is all put together, asks those or says those things at times. Why? Because we're human, we're frail. But Paul would say, let no one come into this house. Let no one get in your head and kidnap you with the lie that you are not blank enough. Now, let me pause. If in my job I need to gain some skill, great. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about more foundationally of who you are and what is really true about you if you are in Christ. And Paul's saying, they're getting you, they're pulling you away, they're taking you into captivity because that's, that's going through your heart and head. I'm not blank enough, and they're filling in my blank for me, or they're filling in where I could be enough if I did this or that. So we get to, that's his warning. Now we get to why, and we're going to kind of pick up the pace. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, we see why. Why does Paul call them and us to be alert and to resist? Well, it's two reasons. Because of who Jesus is and who we are. So because of who Jesus is and who we are. Look at verse 9. Four, again, simple buddy observation, not bright the first word, for. So see to it that nobody takes you captive. Resist that. Don't be taken captive. Why? For. Because. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We don't get this, but his answer to the problem of us feeling like we lack or being tempted to think we don't... Uh, we don't have the resources to live a life pleasing to God. I'm behind. I'm not enough. All of those things. He's talking to believers. He says the reason why you and I can resist is for because of who Jesus is. Who is he? He's God. He is God in, in his, all his fullness. Not an emanation. Not kind of down the ladder. And you can kind of work your way up the ladder too. No. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells. So he's not a demigod. He's not halvesies. And notice, it's dwells is uh, present tense. It's ongoing and never ending. But also, he says, and this is, this is hitting on one of those um, heresies there, that maybe Jesus was just looked like he was a man, but he wasn't. He is 
the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul is very intentional in using that. He's talking about that Jesus is God incarnate. That's a fancy word. It means in the flesh, that he became human. He has always been the second person of the triune God, the Son of God. But in the fullness of time, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He says, we can resist being taken captive by empty philosophies that tempt us because they tell us we don't have what it takes. We don't have enough. We lack. Jesus was a good starting point, but you need to add to him. No, we can resist that. It's a lie. We can see to it that we don't get there because seeing to it, we see through the lie. We can do so because of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He's always been God, but he became man. And after his incarnation and resurrection and ascension, he will always be the God-man, God-man, fully God, fully human. Not a little less in one category or the other. He's fully God and fully man. And so, because of who he is, we can resist and not be taken captive. But it's also because of who we are, because of who you and I are, if you have trusted Jesus, who we are in him. Look at the the next phrase. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So it's because of who we are in him. You have been made complete. How or where? It's better location. In him. I want you to note this. It's a passive verb. You didn't make yourself complete. You have been made complete. It's also a past tense verb. It's the kind where it's, you have been made complete at a point when you trusted him, and it has forward-rolling implications. Meaning, done deal, you have been made complete, and now that, com- that completedness gets lived out and lived into rolling forward forever. So that when we say Jesus paid it all, we can say, when, um, and when before the throne I stand in him complete. The only way we know it can be confident we stand in him complete then is he's already made you complete. Now in another sense, sanctification, as he says, talks about in 128, he does all he does, admonishes others and teaches others so that he may present every person complete in Christ that God's doing the completing deal to make us more like his son. He says, I want you to mature in Christ. And part of that maturity is stability and, and, and a vitality of a walk with him because you understand more and more you don't have to be enough. You're not enough on your own, but he is enough, and he has made you complete in him. We are not the fullness of God, but of his fullness we partake. And so that is what's true of you and me. Now, um, I want you to make the note I, I, uh, I pointed out in him. We'll see it in a moment. In him and with him or, in this, or through him is in this passage seven times. I think the emphasis is not on you and me pulling up our bootstraps, dotting our religious I's, crossing our religious T's, getting your act together. It's because of who you are positionally in him 
and who he's made you and me to be with him in the life that he has given us and then he calls us um, to live out and so we can resist and the reason why we can is because of who he is and who he has made us to be so human philosophy when we see to it that we're alert we can see through it that it that it is empty that it's a lie that it's a deception when it takes us when it's not built on the foundation of jesus christ who he is and who we are because of him human philosophy on its own without with christ not in the equation or at least lessened it leaves you and me empty and takes us captive but in him we have been made complete well how did he make us spiritually complete that that's the next slide verses 11 through 15 we're going to see how jesus made us spiritually complete he says uh first of all he's given us new life in him and with him by giving us a complete identity in him and with him and we see that in verses uh, 11 and 12 and 13 Uh, And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So when he says that, um, we've been given spiritual circumcision. Circumcision really fast. What Paul would say is some of what they were uh, camping on in Colossae, which is also in other New Testament churches, the Jewish faction is really wanting you to kind of go through the Jewish hoops before you can really be part. And circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to note this. Abraham was circumcised well after he believed. That's just an important thing to point out. And circumcision for them, it means literally a cutting off of the flesh. It's cutting off of a particular part of the flesh that was a sign of that uh, Abrahamic covenant God made with Abraham that he would would bless him and make him a blessing to all the nations. And so the nation of Israel coming from Abraham's uh, family, all males were to be circumcised as an outward sign of an inward commitment of the family to be God's people and to obey him. But he says, we've been given something better. Because ultimately, even in the Old Testament, there were passages like in Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 10, where God tells them, circumcise your hearts. Therefore, do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. And then in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. So he tells them to do it, and then he's like, but I'm really going to have to do it, because what I'm talking about here is you getting a new heart. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. And so what God has always been after through that outward physical sign is I I want you to, to be my people circumcised in heart. And he ultimately knew that we would fail and that the law would not get us there. And so a new covenant that we celebrated, as Jude said, the new covenant in my blood through that, now we belong to him and we've been circumcised in heart that's what it means the circumcision of christ when he uh, took our sin on himself and died uh, taking our sin on himself as your place taker and mine he was cut off from god so that we could be cut off unto god 
so that we could be circumcised to God. Elsewhere it says we've been given a heart uh, instead of stone, a flesh. We've been given a new heart, a new disposition. We are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. The old sinful nature still lags and drags us around. But we have been, we have a new identity in Christ because we've been circumcised with him. The next thing he mentions uh, is something that we also have a picture in around here. Uh, Having been buried with him in baptism. Now here he's talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So again, spiritual baptism, not water. But the water baptism is a picture of that. He says that we have been, um, when Christ died, we died with him. In which you also, excuse me, having been buried with him in baptism. Again, baptism means identification. So he's given us a new identity in him. When he died, somehow we died with him. When he was raised, we were raised with him. These are spiritual realities of your new identity. You want to know who you are? If you are in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ, and you are with Christ, and it was none of your doing, and therefore there's none, nothing you can do to make it an undoing. And he says, you've been buried with him in his death, and you've also been raised um, with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What's the point? We, we receive that identity as we believe the working of God. It's faith. It's not outward circumcision. It's not going under waters. They only picture what has already happened inside, spiritually for a person. That's why we say, buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. It's only a picture of a spiritual reality. He's already won, and he's already given, and it's been the working of God. One other thing I don't have time to go on, maybe we'll go through next week. I, I'd love to encourage you to, even just in a skimming reading of Colossians this week, see how many verbs in Colossians are the working of God, not us. We think, I need to get my act together. I better do all these commands. There are some commands in here, but they're, 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 they're very minute compared to all that God has done so that we might walk in this newness of life, in this new identity, so we'd have stability and vitality and gratitude overflowing. And then he says, um, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So the last part of our new identity is that not only were we buried with him and raised with him, He made us alive. You were dead. If you're sick, you need a doctor. If you're dead, you need a Savior. He made us alive together with Him. That is all the work of God. I didn't give a pinky up to help. You were a corpse. Put a toe tag on you. That's who you were. That's what He says. When you were dead in your transgression, that's part of your story. But he says, now, when you were there, God did a work and made you alive together with him. The next uh, reality of being complete in him is the, uh, that he gives us new life. He makes us alive together with him through complete forgiveness. The next phrase, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Underline the word all. The ones before you came to Christ, the ones you did this morning, and the ones that you will commit. And transgression means I'm not so like, oh, I didn't even realize that was a sin. It was like, I see the boundary and I step over the boundary. 
and he has forgiven all of our transgressions, and he has canceled out the debt, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Uh, what this is, is if you owed somebody uh, money, um, the word literally is like a handwritten note. That's what the Greek says here. It's like a handwritten note that you would have written, and you had to do it in your own hand to say, I own that I owe you, Mason, for that HVAC unit. Now, I got to write that out in handwritten, and then when I don't come good on that, you know, paying you, then I get thrown in the slammer, and they would have put it, your handwritten note, above your cell block, okay? What does that remind us of? In the Gospels, when Jesus is put on the cross, they put a note. It's a little more, you know, solid than handwritten above his cross. And remember, the Jews are upset. Like, don't call him the king of the Jews. You know, just say he said he was. What, what were they doing? The crucifixion, anybody crucified, it was a humiliating, shameful thing basically to keep Rome's thumb over everybody and say, see, if you do something out of line, you're going there too. But they made them carry their cross to identify and say, I am the criminal. Jesus didn't carry his cross the whole way, by the way. And when you got there, often they'd say, here's what, here's their debt they owed. Here's the crime they committed. He says he canceled uh, out the certificate of debt. And literally back then they would have had paper like papyrus where often uh, he says that he, he, um, excuse me. Consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile, and he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. It, it means like to wipe it away. They would have had papyrus back then, and even the inks and stuff would have not been as permanent. It's not a sharpie, and they could have wiped it off. Or sometimes they use wax, and you can wipe that wax slate, and it's as if it was never there. The good news of the gospel is no matter how awful you are, no, how ma no matter how criminal in your intentions, no matter how vicious and backbiting you are, no matter how arrogant and shaking your fist at God you are, no matter how self-righteous you are, he's wiped it away. And he can only wipe it away and only say on the cross, it is finished, if indeed he took your sin and my sin in his flesh in his body on the cross shed his blood for us so that it could be wiped away and he says canceled in fact in their culture they would have put a big x over that certificate of debt to say it's paid it's done and god raised him from the dead to say yes and that is the victory so we've been given a complete new identity in him and with him been given new life through complete forgiveness and then we have new life through complete victory over sin and death. Verses 15, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. God made a public display of the rulers and authorities. You sneak a peek back up at verse 10. This is kind of a bracket. He is head over all ruler and authority. Um, he's letting you know he is head over all rule and authority. When they thought they had shamed him and put him to a shameful death and humiliating death, actually it became a source of life for us because it's a victory over sin, death, and Satan that he has won. That's why when we sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, we can sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin.
because it's already been paid. It's already been wiped away. And so we're not trying to be inspired to victory, but we live life in him and with him from the victory he's already secured. Now, Paul gives a a really um, good word picture here. He talks about that he disarms them. It's basically literally stripping them away, Um, both the earthly authorities at the time, but particularly those behind them, Satan and his demons. He strips away their power, their powerless, and he makes a public spectacle of them in the cross. And and he gives a picture here of a Roman triumph. Um, Two things. The gospel means good news, but did you know what it really has the picture of is the good news of an announcement of a victory won in a foreign land of our enemies. And you come an euangelion. You give an euangelion, a good news of the enemy's been defeated. We are now secure and free and, and, and we can live with confidence and joy and not afraid and tremoring or taken captive. And we definitely don't need to go live in enemy, the enemy territory. But he gives a picture of a Roman triumph where the general would come back and he would actually cart back with him the conquered king, oftentimes in very humiliating, oftentimes stripped naked, oftentimes in chains, not only him, but his whole family and all his dignitaries and his army. And I'm not going to read it, but there was one that I read this week, uh, Plutarch uh, did where he talked about, he just said, uh, it was a massive, massive procession. It was three days long. And the conquered king didn't even get to show up until the third day. They were dragging off all the, all the booty, all the spoils of war. They were bringing all the, you know, the gold trinkets and, the, they, and all these wagons. I mean, they, they put on a parade. But it's when they dragged the conquered uh, king in that they also had many of, many of their weapons, spears and um, they also defensive things, shields, and loosely put them together so that as they came through the town, it clanged. It made all the noise to say, look at this, and then look at this guy we conquered. How pathetic and impotent is he, and how victorious are we? Now, most of us don't walk through our Christian life like that. But Paul would say, let no one come into our house and deceive us and draw us off sides, and particularly let no one push us around. Because we are not ones who've got to be inspired to victory. But we have been ones that just simply need to be reminded of all we have in Christ, that he's made you and me complete, and that he is enough for whatever your needs are. And you are in him and been made alive together with him. He is the conquering king, conquered your greatest enemy. Sin and death conquered our enemy personally, Satan and his demons. So that we might be part of his victory parade. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, that he always leads us in his triumph. The Christian life is is a triumphal procession following our leader, Jesus Christ. Romans 8. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to read Romans 8. And we're going to sing and we'll be out of here. If I can find Romans 8 in my notes here. <laughs> there we go.
because the two things I want to I want to put before us in Romans 8 will help us gather together. First of all, as Paul commands, see to it so that you and I might see through whatever it is where you feel like you have lack, you have you don't have what you need. You have all you need in Jesus Christ. We need to be alert. We need to be bewaring, be aware. But see to it. Give attention to where you give attention and make sure that it is becoming more and more being captivated by the one who made you complete. Be captivated by him. Be enthralled with him. Be floored that he would do such merciful things and gracious things for you and for me when we don't deserve it. Part of that see to it, Mike mentioned we're looking for a kids coordinator. The reason why that position is so vital is not because they're going to fix all your kids and they're going to they're make sure, but they're definitely going to come alongside and partner with us to equip the next generation of Christ ambassadors who, because of their faith in Christ, will also live triumphantly. But most of us old folks know life seems to even be more hostile and hard. And so we want somebody. It's very important. This person comes, along, comes in and encourages and volunteers and helps us equip. And alongside you, equip your children in these truths so that they might walk with stability and their lives might have a vitality. And so that's why it's so, so important. Well, I'm going to end with Romans 8. You can stand. This will be our benediction pre the closing song. Romans 8, 1, and then verses 31 to 39. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against you? Because you're God's elect if you're in Christ. God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us, for you, for me. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's sing of that firm foundation and walk out of here with our footing firmed up, not in ourselves, but in the one who made you and me complete because he is completely and fully God.